Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I'm back. Had a little break from podcast and you know, the next few episodes will be a little more sporadic than normal because I have a lot going on in my life. I posted about this on Facebook and had really great support um, from all of you who just said, hang in there, whatever challenges you're going through. We're here for you. I appreciate that so much. Um, And the challenges I'm talking about right now are not in my personal life, uh, thankfully, because those, in my opinion, tend to be bigger and tougher. (laughs) They're more in my business life. You know, I've been running skirt sports for 15 years and we've gone through multiple cycles of change and we're in one right now and it's tough because there are moments when I step back and I say, I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. And um, I mean, I think when you're an entrepreneur, you have to have a high level of risk tolerance throughout your entire like run of whatever you're doing, not just at the beginning. (laughs) But what tends to happen is you start something you take a bunch of risks because you don't have a lot to lose and then you start to develop systems and processes and then you get a little more comfortable. And so when the challenges come, it tests you again. And so I'm being tested right now. And it's hard because it's one of those things where I wish I could just kind of be like, well, I was here and now this happened and now I'm here, but I'm not in the second place yet. So I'm dealing right now with with tough stuff. And you know, when you're in it, it's really hard because you like pretend, okay, I will give you an example. I've had a couple of times in my marriage where we've really struggled and it's really hard because it's not like every day you sit down and you say, so how are you feeling today about this or that or whatever? Because the conversation is the same conversation until you give it enough time and introspection and you let yourself grow so that you can actually have a new thought. (laughs) And so that's kind of where I am. Like I can't update you every single day because you'd get tired of hearing it and it won't change much. It's, we need time and patience and, and that's what I need. And yet I still need to buckle down every day and make things happen. So, so that's what's going on with me and why the podcast has been a little bit more infrequent. Um, But one really cool thing that we are doing, which came from um, shifts in the market, is we're taking advantage of an opportunity that we see. So as I was struggling and thinking about how a skirt sport's going to come out of this current situation we're in, a friend of mine encouraged me to look at things a little differently and said, if you were to start over today, what would you do? So I looked around, I'm a a good, bigger picture person. That's where I tend to shine. And I 
I, I thought about all the different trends in the market and how people shop and what's going on with the environment and what people's values are now. And we are going to launch into the resale market. It's really, really exciting, really interesting, and totally new to us. Um, and it's funny, I, I'm not a person who has bought used athletic clothing. I have occasionally bought products at thrift stores or, you know, tried the consignment thing a little bit, but that's not really my jam. <laughs> but I did a survey and found that of 400 women, 80% of them said, yes, I have bought used active clothing. And I thought, wow, there's really something to this. So we are going to launch a new business extension that will be selling women's activewear in certain categories from a range of brands, not just skirt sports, on Tuesday, November 12th. So get ready, keep your eyes open. Um, We will be announcing it through all our channels and we need to test the concept before we go really big with it. So we're launching it through an existing platform called Poshmark and our account and the name of this new business extension is The Hustle. It's spelled The Hustle, H-U-S-T-L, no last E, because it was taken. <laughs> we probably would have done it, but it's kind of cool without it. So it's The Hustle. So make sure you go over to Poshmark and uh, check out The Hustle Closet. As of Tuesday of next week, it will be full of really awesome, uh, previously loved women's activewear. And so if you're like me and um, you're someone who isn't sure they want to buy used athletic wear, you can still participate in what we're doing by doing the trade-in piece. So here's how it works. You can trade in any of your previously loved athletic clothing that fits our categories that we allow Um, you just send them off to us at Skirt Sports or you bring it into our store in Boulder and whatever we accept, you will either get a 10 or $15 credit to use at skirtsports.com. So you can throw it away. You can bring it to Goodwill. You can try to sell it on your own or you can just send it to us and whatever we take, you'll get credits for and you can use to shop. Um, And what we don't take, we're going to donate to our Running Start program. So you'll know that your products are at least going somewhere where other women are going to get some use out of them. Um, And I think it's interesting too, because when you do start to think about this idea of buying used products, you know, it's happening. This is not just in clothing. It's, It's in all kinds of different categories. You know, we start thinking about it, and here's some here's some thoughts to throw in your head. Why? Why buy used? Save the planet. It's cheaper. Great products last a long time, but our bodies change every day. So things that used to fit don't fit anymore. Get rid of them. It's less risky to try new things. You can give your products a new loving home. Getting a deal feels good, and because it's smart, and you're no dummy. I wrote that. Anyway, um, those are just some little things to throw in the back of your mind to think about as you consider possibly forming a new habit or maybe even an addiction someday. (laughs) Shopping used can be really, really fun. So 
I wanted to share all that with you because I haven't been as available or open lately. And those are some within, I guess, within the tough stuff, um, really cool, bright things are going to rise very soon. So speaking of bright, amazing, brilliant things that are rising up in this world, today's guest, Roderick Sewell, is one of them. He is an absolute bright light in this world. He is. And this is on his Instagram. It's how he describes himself right now. He's the first bilateral above the knee blade runner to complete the Ironman World Championships. Yes, bilateral means both legs. Um, I met Roderick in Kona at the Ironman a few days before he did the race. And I knew pretty much immediately that I was going to get him on the podcast because there is something about Roderick that transcends his accomplishments. And he didn't even have this accomplishment before I met him. He was gunning for it. You know, I interview people who are making change in the world. And you're going to hear from Roderick today in just a, a minute. Um, he's making change in the world just by doing what he does. He doesn't even really know what he wants to do yet, except he wants to inspire others to, to find a path to these words, I can. It's really cool. Today, you're going to hear about challenges. You're going to hear about his challenges. You've already heard about some of my challenges. And instead of feeling depressed or like there's no way out, I think you're going to feel like celebrating. Um, pause for a second here. I want you to pause. I want you to go over to Instagram and follow Roderick. He does not have a website yet. He doesn't have all the, you know, all the stuff set up yet, but he does have an Instagram account. And I think you're going to want to follow him. You're going to want to see what he does next. You're going to want to buy his book when he gets it out. Um, you're just going to need to have this person in your life so that when you're feeling down, you can click over to his account and, uh, and feel better. So you can follow him at R Sewell 92. It's R S E W E L L 92. All right, everyone. It's time. Let's bring Roderick on the show. Um, so Roderick, this is so cool. I feel like we were just hanging out a couple days ago, but it's been close to a month now since Kona, hasn't it? Yeah. Wow. So are you officially in the off season? I am officially in the off season. I'm not doing anything <laughs> and it feels amazing. So what does it mean to not do anything? Like you literally aren't working out at all. So I, I still work full time. Um, so I have my, um, training studio that I manage. It's called Tailwind Endurance. And, uh, the owner lives in Florida. He was actually there at Kona with me. Um, and, uh, I actually did a lot of my training for Kona on an indoor trainer. Actually, one day I did seven and a half hours on an indoor trainer. Wait, um, like the hand cycle indoor trainer? Yeah. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Well, but you needed that because the race took that long for you. Right. Right. And then longer, you know, and, longer. <laughs> <laughs> and a little longer. And we're going to get there in a minute. We're going to go through that whole awesome day in Kona. But so mm -hmm. in the off season, you come back and you just you're kind of focused on work right now. Yeah. Right now, um, since I've been back, just more focused on getting back in tune with what's going on in the studio, um, 
once the winter comes around is when we get our busiest. Uh, a lot of people want to ride indoors. A lot of endurance athletes that want to do well in the upcoming season come to train and get ready for the season coming. So, so what do um, you do? Are you an actual trainer? I coach as well. I, I coach mainly, mainly swimming. Um, I my bike. You know, since I use a hand cycle, I'm not particularly comfortable with coaching on the bike. Um, but that's why I love working at Tailwind Endurance because we have coaches from all ranges that have experience. So it's, it's good to bounce ideas and translate what para and able body sports can offer um, and what they can do. So uh, I'm really just learning how to coach on the bike and the run I've been doing for a little bit longer. So I, I've been coaching that for a while. Uh, but my focus is is on swimming. You know, let's let's uh, go back and give our listeners a little background here. So we have mentioned hand cycle, and then you mentioned para athletes. So, you know, there's an introduction that I just gave them, so they know a little bit about you. But one of the really crazy, just I mean, epic things about you finishing Kona is that you did it on what my daughter would call two robot legs. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So let's give them a little background on, um, you know, why you're a double amputee. Yeah. So I was born with missing tibias in both my legs. Um, And the tibias just weren't uh, just apparently I didn't finish cooking is what my mom said. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Positive spin. Always. Positive spin. Everything else came out fine, but the tibias just didn't form. And that left, you know, no real stability in my legs. So I couldn't really stand. Um, and my feet were twisted because I didn't have that bone to support. Um, so my, so once that, you know, basically once I was born, my mom and my dad were unfortunately going through their own struggles and ended up uh, getting divorced. Um, and around that time is when my mom had to make the decision of amputating my legs, um, or putting me in a wheelchair. And how old were you at that time? So when she decided and made her decision for the amputation, I was a year, and I think I was a year and a half once I got the surgery. Oh, wow. Okay. So how common is the birth defect that you had with the no no tibias or tibias not forming properly? You know, it's interesting. As I get older, they say that that particular disability isn't common. But I feel like every double above me that I know had the same issue. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the wow. Same yeah, it's, it's very, because this is what you'll get. You'll get the double below or double above or a single below, single above. And usually it's that same situation. They're missing a tibia or fibia. And um, yeah, it's, it's very rare. But as we, as we see, you know, people getting more prosthetics and doing more actively um, as adaptive athletes, uh, Apparently that rareness kind of brings everybody together. So, yeah, um, yeah, I get to meet the same people with the same situation. You know, I'm I'm putting myself in your mom's shoes right now. So, Mm. you know, I'm imagining, I'm sure you've had some discussions with her about this and I'd love to hear how she framed things for you. But I'm imagining like a young mother um, with a baby faced with making a decision that will affect the, her child's entire life. And I mean, has she ever talked to you about how she and why she decided to make that decision? And you had mentioned like, or the options were double amputation or a wheelchair. Like, mm-hmm. why did she go this way? 
from what I was told, she said that everyone told her to put me in a wheelchair because nobody understood what kind of life he would have as an amputee. And um, the doctors told her, yeah, he could wear prosthetics as he gets older. Uh, we can start him off with these baby prosthetics. And um, yeah, everyone was against it because at that time, nobody, especially in my family, nobody really knew what prosthetics were or how they would live or if I would need somebody to care after me all the time or um yeah they nobody knew so they were automatically saying put them in a chair at least we know how to deal with that you know yeah um, that and that sucks because she's then faced with going off her gut and this was 25 years ago because you're 27 now right yes yeah so yeah I mean I'm sure she knew nobody in this position so so why did she go against what everybody said? Um, because it was different and something was telling her to make that decision. Um, and it was the best decision she could have made for me, for sure. Well, yeah, and I can imagine people didn't even know if you'd ever learn how to walk on prosthetic legs. Right, is, and walk prosthetic. Yeah. Like they were, there was a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of doubts, like if he, I would be able to take care of myself in the future. Um, but that's why my mom was so strict in, in the beginning, so that I could kind of handle my own. What do you mean she was so strict? <laughs> Give me a little insight into this. My, my mom had no remorse. <laughs> no, she's a, she's a tough cookie. Um, when I was a baby, so I had my legs amputated. When I was really young, I got my first pair of prosthetics when I was three. And when I didn't have my prosthetics on, I didn't want to get anything. I didn't want to move or maneuver myself. So when I was younger, before I got the prosthetics, my mom would have a bottle for me and she would like put it on the opposite side of the room and I would have to figure out how to go get it, whether that's crawl or roll or <laughs> whatever it was, she would make me go get my bottle if I was going to cry for it. Wow. Um, that was just that too. So I can only imagine. <laughs> It only got a little bit more strict as the years went on. You know, I need your mom to come over and do a little help with Wilder. You can't imagine <laughs> the amount of time she just looks up and says, I'm thirsty and and expects that we'll deliver her a glass of water or whatever. And half the time I do. I need to stop that. It's enabling. Wow. Your mom is amazing. I met her. I had the opportunity to meet her in Hawaii when she had just uh, shown up. Do you remember when we were playing with the gecko? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. And um, wow, she's just, and, and she was doing this all alone. So do you have a relationship with your dad? I do, yes. Um, we aren't necessarily that close, but we do have a relationship. We had a stronger relationship when I was younger. And as I got older, um, you know, we stay in touch. We, we communicate when we need to or when we can. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's, that's my dad. He's doing his own thing. He's got his own life going on. So, so you grew up with a single mom and, uh, you know, a disability that was unusual and you guys had to figure it out as you went. And not only is it unusual, it's really expensive or not unusual, right. but rare, right? Um, not nobody else you knew needed two prosthetic legs. So it's expensive. So, you know, if people Google you, they're going to see articles that say, you know, Roderick spent some years in homeless shelters. 
So can you talk a little bit about what happened in order for your mom to provide the the equipment, the prosthetic, you know, the legs that you needed in order to function? Yeah, so when I got my first pair of prosthetics, like I said, I was three, and it was very basic, so it was just kind of getting that first pair so you can maneuver and learn how to walk. Um, and then as time went on, you basically need better insurance to get a higher level prosthetic. Um, my mom was working for the Navy at the Naval base at the time. She was driving forklifts for the Navy for 21 years and making decent money on her own, um, had her own place, her own house. Uh, but once my situation with my prosthetics built and the insurance bills and everything got higher, um, is when she did decided to file for unemployment which actually was the best way to get me full coverage for my prosthetics. Um, because she didn't have the funds, I can get 100% coverage, and then I was able to walk on whatever grade I needed. Oh, my um, gosh. That sounds so screwed up. Like, yeah. if you make too much money, you can't get the best stuff, so you're better off changing your financial situation, and then w was it, like, covered more by the government? Well, yeah, so... The reason why she she was making decent money, right, but not enough to afford prosthetics, because at that time, one prosthetic leg was up to thirty thousand, um, and I needed two of them. So she she was doing well enough, but not that well to wow. afford two prosthetics off the bat. Um, so that's why she filed for the unemployment, which will cover both legs. Wow. But and then there's the issue of how do you pay bills or. Um, you know, all that money issues, money problems. So you were able then to get legs, but then you guys had to figure out how to survive. So what happened? And you were living in San Diego, right? Yes. Yeah. So I was born in San Diego. Um, we were there. We I remember we left our house that we had been in for a few years. And I remember we left with no car, which we had had before. And our my mom was walking me on her back to the bus stop. And she had already moved out all our stuff. Everything was done. And I remember it was a quiet day. Um, and I didn't really know what was going on. But we had lost our house. We were moving into an apartment. Moved into that apartment. And then kind of bounced back and forth between apartments until we were homeless. Um, I was maybe eight going on nine. Or I think I just turned eight when we were homeless. So that was... 1999, 2000. Yeah, 2000. You know, um, it's, it's crazy because anyone who sees you or meets you will walk away just feeling happier. Like you are, you seem to be a grounded person and maybe you're just more appreciative, but there's just a light about you and, and the smile that never seems to leave. And, and I think about being nine years old and not having a home or a, a home base, you know, the fact that you didn't have that living foundation, mm -hmm. how did, I mean, did you ever feel like you weren't grounded or did you always feel grounded because you were with your mom? I always felt grounded because I was with my mom. If I wasn't with her, then I would have felt just all over the place because we were literally all over the place. I did a lot of walking as a child, which is partially why I, I walk so much in my prosthetics now. Um, 
Yeah, it was it was a constant movement. There would be times where we had shelters that you had to be out by 5 a.m. or, um, you know, you had to be there by a certain time or you weren't getting in. And then if you didn't get in, you had to find another one. It was, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of hustle and bustle. So is it in that? Can we talk about this for a minute? Because I've actually never interviewed someone who went through a period of homelessness. And I'm I know you were a child, so it might be harder to remember, but I'm really, I'd like to learn a little more. For sure. Um, I, I wish my, I wish my mom was here to talk to you because I actually look at it through her, her point of view now that I'm older. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so it does because, uh, you know, you were young, so you're going to have memories of that time, but really she's the one who's probably telling you the stories about how it went, you know, and those become our memories, those stories. But mm -hmm. was it a situation where you could like apply for a place in a shelter for a period of time? Or was it that every single day you just didn't know if you were going to have a roof over your head the next night? Um, it was not every day. Uh, eventually we got into a pretty steady shelter and it was almost like a, like a dorm um and it was other moms and their children so we were there for a while and that was pretty consistent um it wasn't your average home but i knew what i was coming home to and i was getting to the point where it was not an issue and then my mom decided that we would move from san diego to alabama where we had family there okay so when you were in the you know, that temporary situation, did you ever feel unsafe? Yeah, for sure. There were, well, I didn't because again, uh, <laughs> I had Marion Jackson. <laughs> yeah. She, she is not to be, yeah, she's not to be played with. Um, but she, she had to deal with, again, seeing from her point of view, she had to deal with some interesting characters. Like, you know, we're sleeping on cots that are, used or, or borrowed and um you have some interesting characters sleeping around you the ones that you wouldn't necessarily want to step to or walk around when they're you see them on the streets at night you know and to have that sleeping next to you your child is not that that's that's a rude way to say have that person sleeping next to you um you don't know who it is or what they're dealing with but you have those individuals that are sick and those individuals that mentally need help um and you just never know I mean, do you think you developed a greater capacity for empathy during that time or did you just develop more toughness? How did this, you know, period of your life shape you? Um, you know what? I had an aunt, my aunt Myra, and she actually came to the shelter one time and spoke to everybody. <laughs> I was just so confused why she was talking to everybody and hearing their stories. And she just left so inspired. She's like, oh, my God, these people are going through all this stuff and they're, they're still fighting, going through the day. And I'm just looking at her like, I live here. <laughs> like, what, what are you talking about? Um, and she was just so moved. And I, being in that, it does kind of teach you to appreciate the little things. Um, and, yeah, you learn to appreciate what other people are going through. Um you know, at this point, because of that time, I feel like, yeah, empathy is more more present in me now. Um, but yeah, 
it's, it's it definitely built character, if anything. You know, you are so awesome. So during this time, <laughs> I think during the the years that you were displaced a bit, is that when you learned to swim? So I didn't learn to swim until I was about 10 years old. Um, I had met Rudy, um, who you, you met, right, uh, in, in Kona. Oh, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Rudy Garcia Tolson, he's a he's the first other double above knee amputee I ever met. I, you know, I went for years. I remember thinking before I met Rudy, sometime before I met him, not too long, I was thinking, man, I have never seen anybody like me. And I saw this guy in a wheelchair, he had one leg, um, and this is all downtown amongst the people that are homeless as well. Um, but I never saw anybody that was like me. And then a few months later is when I got introduced to CAF and then I get out of the car and I see Rudy. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> it's completely blown away by this guy that looks exactly like me, but completely different. You know, <laughs> Totally. And he was a little kid too, right? Yeah. Rudy was 11, 11 and a half the time we met and I was eight. Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah. was a badass. Like he was kind of the face of um, CAF, the Challenged Athletes Foundation, for many years when when I was racing as a pro, you know, he was a very recognizable force in our sport as a little kid doing really cool things and inspiring people. So, you know, he was probably very comfortable with his place in that world and you were just entering it. It's really mm-hmm. interesting. Were you always an athletic kid? No, no. So when I met Rudy, like you said, he was already pretty well-renowned. He was you know, about to be 12, training towards the Paralympics um, four years from then. And yeah, he was already well-known as a, a professional athlete at 11 years old. <laughs> so, And me, I, I had no idea I could do sports until I met Rudy. Um, when I met him and met CAF and saw what he could do is when I got involved into adaptive sports. And it was just like when you would put, if you put Wilder in every sport to see what she would like, is kind of what I what I did. Um, I was hand cycling, uh, running on my blades that I got when I was nine, and ran my first race when I turned ten a week later. Oh my um, gosh! Oh my gosh! Well, wait, can we back up? So you said you like you did the whole like gamut of sports. Did you do any sports where you're like, Oh my God, that sucked. I'm never doing that again. And then like, of course the ones you gravitated to, maybe you can share a little bit about this because the reason I think it's, it's interesting is that especially as we get older, we just close the door on the idea of doing different things. And Mm -hmm. it's fun to hear about the trials and tribulations because you just never know what's going to hit and who cares if it doesn't? Like, what's the worst that can happen? You didn't like it or you weren't very good at it or whatever, right? It's funny you said that because hand cycling was actually probably maybe the last. Really? Um, not, yeah, and it's funny that years later I start training. <laughs> <laughs> so you tried it when you were young and you were like, uh-uh, not for me. It was fun, but it was just, yeah, it was just not for me. And I had my own bike and I didn't take it out much. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was fun. It was cool to do on occasion, but I didn't do it often. And I never saw myself training for it. So, you know, you said, like, I, I had no idea I could do sports until I met Rudy. How did CAF find you? So CAF, uh, there's a lady named Marla Knox, and she was working with Disabled Sports in San Diego. 
and um, they have adaptive programs through everything. And they are, you know, CAF is kind of the, uh, you know, the grand poobah. <laughs> like they're they're reaching out to everyone that has anything adaptive, and they're kind of the ones supplying the equipment and gear. Um, you know, they've been doing this for twenty plus years now, and it's gotten to the point where they're giving out gear to seventy different countries. Um, so CAF has been anything adaptive. Most likely, CAF has been a, a help in getting some kind of funding or equipment or coaching, whatever it is, um, put into it. Um, so yeah, that's how, that's how pretty, pretty much was through that kind of that domino effect. Oh, great. Okay. So, so you, um, you jumped into all kinds of things and which sports stuck? Um, wheelchair basketball swimming was last dead last because I was terrified of the water. Um, and track running. So you kind of, you pursued wheelchair basketball and track for a while, huh? Uh, track didn't last too long. I, I was not a sprinter. Got it. Oh, so you knew even young that you were an endurance guy. I knew I was not fast. This is what I knew. <laughs> I didn't know I was a person until I got older. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, let's dig into the one you mentioned that was last or maybe second to last. The hand cycling was back there too, but... You mentioned swimming. So you said you're terrified of the water. So how did oh, yeah. you, why did you even decide to give it a try? Um, because I was afraid because, uh, I saw Rudy do it and I knew that because he could do it, I could too. Um, yeah, it was once I overcame that fear or wanted to overcome that fear, I got lessons from my, still my coach to this day, Alan Boissard and his wife, Allison Terry, um, they helped me kind of get my bearings when it came to the feeling safe in the water and then started getting to the point where I was comfortable enough to swim. Um, my coach, he put me on a surfboard in the middle of the pool in Mission Valley YMCA in San Diego. And he was like, you know, just paddle, just paddle back and forth and, and until you feel comfortable. And then once I felt good is when it kind of turned into freestyle and he would take the board away and I would just have this wide pool and it worked. Wow. You know, um, I grew up a swimmer as well and I've known a lot of really good swimmers and they go into two different categories. Some are floaters and some are sinkers and both can be great swimmers. You just have to learn how to adapt. Were you a floater or a sinker? I was a sinker. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh my gosh. Because a lot of what sinkers do is use their legs to help keep them up and you didn't have legs. <laughs> so that's absolutely amazing. So, um, like with swimming, once it started to click, when did you realize you could actually be pretty good? Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily, could I be good? It was, I want to try racing now cause I feel comfortable. You know, let me see what this is all about. And, once I did that, it was, oh, okay, I actually really like this. This is this is kind of fun. I could see myself pursuing it. But even when I learned how to swim and we got into lessons and competing, uh, we were still kind of going through our own issues of where we were going to live. Um, so it was kind of hard to really stay committed in the pool. 
Um, so a, a, around the time I was 11 or 12 is when I wasn't really swimming as much. And that's the same time we moved to Alabama. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, life, so life transitions are hard. I mean, no matter how you slice it, but you made the decision to move because I think it sounds like your mom thought you'd have more stability. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 I, she wanted more stability and it was, that was definitely the case. We had family there. We had cheaper living. Um, so I definitely was more stable. Uh, it was it's completely different from San Diego being in Alabama. And <laughs> we were in Birmingham. So it was, yeah, yeah, very, very different. But I missed the Southern hospitality. I will say that. So you found things to embrace about it. I mean, did, I, I would assume that living having the background you had made you a very adaptable person mm -hmm. is, is that something you agree with yes that's very very true <laughs> yeah you know and and also like finding comfort in uncomfortable situations i mean i think that's one of the keys to being um an athlete at a high level is it's not comfortable when you're working hard but there's a reward mm -hmm. out there somewhere so finding comfort in new places, um, new challenges. That's, that's something not everybody has or has had the ability to nurture. And I see that in you for sure. I don't know. What do you think about that concept of discomfort, comfort in the discomfort? I, I really appreciate that. I like, I'm glad you said that because I am, um, now that I'm older, I'm trying to get into a different side of what I want to do in my life. Um, I got started with this group called Lemkind Foundation, and they're actually taking trips worldwide pretty much to make prosthetics for kids. And um, I've been with CAF for, for almost 20 years. And as a kid growing up now being an ambassador, um, Lemkind is doing something a little different. CAF is more focused on the sports, getting people from being still to being active and mobile. Um, Lemkind is focused more so on getting people to be just exist with prosthetics, live with prosthetics. So to learn from nothing or not using anything to being able to walk on prosthetics. And that's just a whole other, you know, that's getting some, giving somebody a life back. That's not sports. That's just giving somebody the ability to walk. Um, wow. So you're finding a deeper meaning through, um, your experiences and like, it sounds like you're at a point in your life where you're saying, I want to give back. Yes, for sure. And I can't give back the way I want to yet. And, you know, financially I would like to, but <laughs> I would, you know, I was always told if you can't give money, give time. So that's, that's the best way I can. Oh, I love that. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. Um, I want to, I want to touch on this, but I want to go back first to, I want to kind of take us through to the Kona experience. So before we get there, maybe just a, a quick overview of your swimming career, like what swimming ended up doing for you or what you did for swimming, however that works, because you don't just jump into Kona with no real background in any sport. And we didn't quite touch on the fact that you were a complete badass in the pool. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm all right. <laughs> um, so basically what, to kind of take it all back, um, I had a grant when I was 16 
to go to the Paralympic Games in Tokyo, or it's not Tokyo, sorry, in Beijing. Um, and that's where I got to see Rudy get gold in his main event, which was the 200 IM. Um, and seeing my friend <laughs> medal and then stand on the podium live in the in the water, what was it called? The, the, the cube, they called it. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> just seeing him up there and it just kind of made everything, made me realize what I wanted to do. Um, and at the time I was still playing wheelchair basketball as well. So uh, I was really torn between what, what did I want? Uh, but yeah, so once I got there, I saw Rudy do his thing and I got home and I said, I told my coach who taught me how to swim that I wanted to um, train for the Paralympics in swimming. I knew for a fact. And he said, okay, we got to find you a team. Uh, I got started with Hoover Blue Thunder in Alabama, and it was the first swim team I was really on. Um, I swam at Lakeshore Foundation, and also in Alabama, who worked with disabled athletes, um, getting them in hopes of getting them to the Paralympics. Um, and then I went to college, University of North Alabama, continued my training there. While I was there, I made the 2014 PanPAC team, my first national team. Um, I got gold and bronze there, 100 breaststroke, and the relay was the 4x1. Or was it? No, 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 sorry. 4x50 um, relay. And I had to do breaststroke leg. Um, so that was my first ever national team. My second national team was 2015, where I got bronze and a breaststroke, 100 meter. Um, and that was for Pan, Pac or Pan Ams. And then 2017 was Worlds, where I got uh seventh and finals for my main event which is 100 meter breaststroke um so not my best performance but my last national team i took some time off from swimming and then that's when the kona opportunity came around wow you know i was a breaststroker too and uh i still have nightmares about so of course you know swimmers we swim doubles and sometimes you throw a third workout in like weightlifting or whatever so, you know, you were actually preparing for triathlon at the time because you need to do more than one workout a day, right? And yeah. I still have nightmares of this workout my coach would make me do, which was 10 200s breaststroke. And I remember coming in the morning and doing it once and then going to lifeguard or whatever my day job was as a high schooler and then coming back in the afternoon and he gave me the same set. It was like, the, if, if you want to drive a kid from swimming, give them 10 200s breaststroke. The, 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 the oxygen deprivation coming off every wall is just absolutely brutal. Can you relate? Yes. No, there. So I got to a point where I was swimming 10,000 meters a day. And I, I just like to reiterate, I have no legs. So the fact that, <laughs> this is all upper body this is all body positioning oh um, god <laughs> was, uh, yeah I, I definitely understand what you mean i know how to drive people away from swimming um <laughs> but it was it was like you said everything leading up to this year was getting ready for kona it, you know whether you knew it or not like it's just crazy those things that change your life um I, I, I want to understand, too, you know, you got an invite into Ironman. How did that happen? So we had our race in, our race in uh, Oceanside, and it was the Oceanside half. I did the relay, I did the swim, and I had a teammate who did the bike, and then I did the run. Um, 
as I was doing the run course, Bob Babbitt was on the course with me. And I remember running, I didn't pass him, but I started before him. I remember running past him on the course and uh, he was like, <laughs> I just remember hearing him say, Roderick? <laughs> he was it's completely <laughs> blown away by the idea of me running. He had no idea I'd been already running so much. Um, and uh, he was amazed. And I kind of shocked myself. I did an hour 39. Um, for the, and that was the first time I ever ran 13 miles. Oh, my um, gosh. That is so fast. That's amazing. Thank you. I was pretty shocked. I was pretty shocked. Uh, but it was... You know, before getting ready for that race, I ran maybe six miles in Central Park. So every seventh, eighth, ninth, you know, I'm just like, oh, this is the furthest I've ever gone. All right, cool. Let's just see how long I can keep going. So wait, that was in April of this year. Yeah. And you had still weren't on a a hand cycle often or ever. Okay. And so you, you do, you did the swim, your friend does the, the bike, you do the run. And then still, how did you get into Ironman? Um, after that race is when Bob told me, you know, if you have the chance to get to Ironman, would you want to do it or would you want to do Kona? And I told him, yeah. Um, he said, if we can, if we can get you a slot, you know, would you start training now to get ready? And I told him, of course, like, I'm not going to say no to Kona. <laughs> um, and he told me like where it might not happen but let's just have you training i got home i started running more i was already swimming a ton um because my swim training has continued even though i took time off from competing i still stayed in the pool um and all we said was i need a hand cycle luckily at tailwind endurance we have a hand cycle series that we can use um i started just doing one hour two hour three hour rides and then I got my kneeler hand cycle, which is a little different setup. Um, you've seen it's, it's more of a kind of from the hip core, you're pressing into your stroke. And it's a constant press and roll, if you think of it that way. You're sitting up and kind of sitting in a bucket, and it's just a constant press, roll, press forward, roll backwards. And it's, that technique was what I needed to build. Um, so I built my endurance on that. And then I got the surprise from Ironman, from Andrew, the CEO. Um, and he was saying, we, we have a stop for you for Ironman. And this was a few months out from the race. I was like, thank God I've been training. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I'm sitting here doing this press down row back thing. And I'm like, oh, my God, I just can't even imagine because the pressure is always on. You have no relief. Um. Yeah. It's just incredible. So Andrew, Andrew gave you the phone call. He he surprised. So I went to a Nasdaq event um, with Wada Sports, and Ironman was there, and they had a few athletes that came through, and then Andrew was there, um, and he surprised me at the event. And <laughs> I would, the first thing I thought was, I've been training, but I need to go train on my bike because I am nowhere near ready for. <laughs> <laughs> if Kona was today, I would not pass. I would I would definitely not finish. Wow. Um, okay. So you're lucky you had Rudy and some other people who've done the race who could maybe be your guides or coaches and give you yeah. the ins and outs. Oh my God. Right. So how so, so, yeah, go ahead. I have Rudy uh and Bob Babbitt who I've known Bob since I was little, same as Rudy. Um and Bob was a huge help. Earl Walton, who's the owner of Tailwind Endurance, who also works for Iron Man. 
Um, he was a big help. And it's having a team that was there and a team that was in New York and prepared, a team in San Diego, making sure I got there safe. All the support from everybody nationwide was it was it was yeah it was a huge team it was a huge team effort there was it was definitely not just me crossing the line <laughs> um so so let's let's talk about hawaii so i i met you um my daughter wilder and i as you know we were there to celebrate tim and his previous career right but we hadn't yeah. been back to hawaii for 7 or 8 years so we just you know we were there to just enjoy and Wilder and I are both on the social side. Tim's a little more introverted. <laughs> so whenever I saw people I would, you know, kind of knew or maybe even just knew through social media, I'd be like, oh, we got to say hi to that person. <laughs> so there's one morning where Wilder and I are playing at the hotel pool and they're doing some interviews of like, hey, VIPs, why don't you take it? You were one of those VIPs. I see a guy who I knew from social media, Rudy, but he was all grown up. And then I see you standing with him and, you know, I'm like, well, he must be doing the race because he doesn't have legs and he looks really fit and he's hanging out with Rudy. So Rudy's probably involved in some way, but we came over and said hi to you. And from that first morning that we met you, I swear we just ran into you like a million times. It was like right. Wilder would say something like, I think I'm going to see Roderick. I never told you this, but the morning of the race, our um, hotel room overlooked the back alley of where the athletes would go to get body marked, which was like mm -hmm. by where the award ceremonies were. And then mm -hmm. the athletes were all walking through in a parade out to like the pier area, right? Do you remember this on race morning? Yes. And we looked out for about two minutes. I was like, hey, look, Wilder, you can see the athletes walking by. And then I went back in the room and she goes, I think I'm going to see Roderick. And literally 30 seconds later, she goes, mommy, I see Roderick. I see Roderick. And you're way down there. We're on like the ninth floor. And I'm like, How did, what? She's got to be kidding. And I walk over and I see you and we scream, Roderick. And you, you looked up and waved and kept walking. But it was like... Every time we needed like a little boost of something positive, it was like, hey, maybe we'll see Roderick. And we turn around, there you were. So I just wanted to share those fun little stories. But we felt very connected to you. And I'm sure many other people did too. And it's all because of the, the light and the positive energy field that you carry around with yourself. <laughs> well, thank you. No, Wilder was the best. She was, she's such a sweetheart. She's so kind, like <laughs> genuine. And when you sent me the video of you guys, I was on the run coming in. She looked so excited, but <laughs> like was containing her excitement. I just saw her like little feet like stepping. She's like, come on, come on. <laughs> she was so excited running across like blocks to see you again here, here or here. You know, I knew all the ins and outs of how to find an athlete in Correct. one spot. And then you had to sprint to see them in another spot before they turned a corner. And she was just with me barefoot in a bikini running down <laughs> Ali'i to see you one more time before you turn the hot corner. How fun is that? You had that serious made, fans. Seriously. That made my trip. That made it so worth it. Oh uh, my gosh. 
Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, let's, let's back up. So it's race morning. It's, it's Kona. You, you did a three month or four month, like cram session to prepare for this thing, but you still had never done an Ironman before your longest race was what? Um, so I actually did a half Ironman two weeks before Kona in Montauk. First of all, that's like almost crazy because like you might not even recover in time for Kona. Were you like still sore? Uh, no, I was fine. It was a good training session. Um, <laughs> good, good. Okay. Before I left for Kona. So it was enough time to be like, because I was there a good week before the race. Um, so it was enough time to be like, okay, I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah. But you know, you needed to do some things like that to get your confidence up to a certain point. So I, I think it's cool. Yep. Okay. So, so you come over to Kona. I mean, do you have any other stories from before the race that were like either, you know, foreboding in a good way or a bad way? Um, before the race, uh, oh, not too many, not too many people know this. I went to go run in an energy lab. I did 10 miles there. Um, I, like I said, I was there a good week before. So I did uh, a ride up a V 60 miles, and that was fine that day. No wind, completely the opposite on race day. Um, and uh, the run I had on the energy lab, I did 10 miles and my soles, the glue I had on my running blades melted and the soles were coming off of my blades. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. The energy yeah. lab is where races are won or lost. And it literally looks like the pavement is melting because it, it basically is because it's so freaking hot. Um, that's so awesome that you did that because then you were able to maybe fix them so it wouldn't happen on race day, huh? Well, you know what? I noticed it a couple days before race day. Uh, lucky, Luckily, I had Rudy, a.k.a. Mr. MacGyver, who uh, <laughs> cut a pair of Hoka <laughs> and shoved my blade inside a Hoka shoe and glued it so it stayed tight. So I'll just run in a, <laughs> running with Hoka shoes on. Oh my gosh, that is insane. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay, you got to talk to those guys. They need to sponsor you. Yeah, seriously. Right. That's, that's next on the map. We'll right. see. <laughs> yeah, we'll work on that one next. Um, yeah. So how, how did the race, like, take us through the race? Give us your recap. Well, the swim was... <laughs> Honestly, I love this one, but I was very lonely. <laughs> so when I think about the swim and I think about Ironman, obviously they did the wave start this year. So um, it actually worked out really nice. I thought it was very smooth. Um, I just expected the, the mayhem of the swim. And I was kind of excited about that part. <laughs> um, Wait, you were excited for everybody to thrash around and get hit a little bit? I, did, I know that sounds crazy, but yes, I was so excited for that part. Oh, we're in it. Um, you know, but it, it, it's fine. It's just it was. I never expected doing an Ironman. I did. I definitely didn't expect to be alone <laughs> out there during this swim because it was. It was the um, the pro men went off at six twenty five, and then the pro women at six thirty, and then the PC physically challenged category six thirty five, um, which I ran to the start almost kind of late everybody was already in the water but i i was told i had to go at 7 30 and then i was retold that i had to go at 6 35 so it was just this back and forth thing um but once i got in the water everybody everybody was there 
Um, but a lot of people in the PC category, swimming is not their strongest suit. It's either cycling or running. Um, while for me, swimming is the, the fun part, you know. Um, so we start to swim. I, I kind of lead out with the pack. Um, and then I'm trying to, <laughs> I don't know why I thought this, but I'm trying to catch the pro women. I was like, I know they got five minutes on me, but I'm going to catch them. Did you catch any? I, I was swimming with one lady. I don't know who she was. Um, I don't, she was, I passed her, but maybe something was going on because she was really slowing down. I don't, I don't know where. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to worry about her right now though, but that's, yeah, that is awesome. And that's like, that's what a true champion does. I mean, you go after, you just keep your eyes forward, right? Yeah, You're going after it. And once I was secure being on my own out there, I was just thinking about the race and running through everything. I, I kept myself in the moment and was thinking, okay, just swim. Um, but I tried to plan out everything that I could or run through everything in my head and then get back to kind of focusing on the swim. Um, then we get to the bike. The bike for everybody is the worry because we know Rudy tried this 10 years ago and finishing the bike cutoff was the issue. Um, so, you know, everybody's nail biting a little bit on the bike, but, uh, you know, it could have been worse. Um, going up Javi was the hardest part. You know, the winds were, I didn't realize how bad it was or how bad the winds were, but I, now that I know that it was 25 to 40 miles per hour, um, apparently it got up to 50. It makes a lot more sense that I was struggling, like really just felt like I was going uphill the entire time. Yep. Even on the way down. On the way down. Yeah. You got that a little bit of speed, but you still have to work. Um, yeah. And the side, the crosswinds are, are what really always have freaked me out on the bike. And up to right. Javi, it's just like blasting because you'll go through these little channels and you're like, oh, it's calm for a second. And then. <laughs> yeah. Sketchy. You know, I remember that. And I remember those horrible winds and the longer you're out there, the worse they get. So like the mm -hmm. pros didn't have it nearly as bad as you. Um, and, and it is, it's a testament to just hanging on. I mean, were there any moments when you thought, I think I should wrap it up or did you always in your head say, I'm going to finish this thing? I, so there, I never thought I should quit. I did at one point think, man, I, what if I don't finish? That just snapped in my mind for a second because, <laughs> and I'm a little like thrown off by telling you this. I definitely threw up twice going up Javi. Um, and it was back to back exorcist projectile style. Like it was, it was pretty bad. And you uh, pretty good. So, you know, at least you cleared something out. You know, that's it, also the name of the game out there, but yeah, it can come on fast and there's, there's not a, a lot of ways around it. You know, you just, you can't determine, you can never train as hard in practice with the conditions you're going to get on race day and having done a swim of an hour or whatever with no fluids the whole time. Like when's the last time you did a swim workout and you didn't bring a water bottle to the pool deck? Like you just don't know until you're out there and your stomach always takes the brunt of it. So I'm not surprised, but it is like disgusting and horrible feeling. Did you stop when you were, when you were throwing up? <laughs> oh, I kept it going. I just looked over to the right and just like, <laughs> let it out. <laughs> this lady going past me is like, Oh, you got it. You'll be okay. <laughs> you got this. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'll keep going. 
but I that's when that's when that moment hit. Like, man, maybe I won't finish. Maybe this is maybe we were, this is too soon. Maybe this was too much, too fast. Um, and then I initially thought, if I'm not going to finish, I'm definitely going to give it my all until I hear that I didn't finish. Um, so I just kept hammering on the bike, and I remember. I was going up. The winds were pretty strong. Um, I didn't. I couldn't touch my food because I couldn't stop pedaling. Uh, once we came on the turnaround, I grabbed my food, my special needs bag. Everything's pretty good. Um, getting off the bike, going into the run, had to. It took me seven minutes in transition just to kind of get my body used to not being in that position again, um, and kind of relax before I start the run because if I went straight into the run, I might have kind of seized up my back. And I didn't want that. Um, going through the run, I went out way too hard. I was doing <laughs> It must have been Wilder getting her high five because I was doing nine minute miles. <laughs> I mean, you looked so good. We were like, whoa, he's got this. We were checking the tracker like every five minutes. And I got to tell you at dinner, because we had to take a break and go eat. And Wilder was like, but how much time is left? And oh no, well, what if Roderick doesn't make it? I'm so worried about him. It was all night long. I'm so worried about Roderick. She was just in it. And we said, he's got this. But then as the day went on, it was getting a little closer to that Mm -hmm. 17 hour cutoff. So yeah, talk about like when the run, when you went from going nine minute miles, like what happened in in that crazy 26.2? So when I started running, I was going a little too fast, and then mile 11 hit. And at mile 11, I was um, I had to walk. I told myself I wouldn't walk until I needed to, and at that mile was when I kind of needed to walk a little bit. Uh, and it was just like, a, okay, you're at the final stretch. Oh, you only have so far to go. You're almost halfway, and let's finish this. So I walked half a mile. Started jogging again, got to mile 16. And I told Rudy this, but I walked from mile 16 to 17, which is why it took me 25 minutes. Because walking and running legs is extremely slow. If you're not walking, you're you're not moving very fast. If you're not running, sorry. Then you're not moving fast. Um, so <laughs> at mile 16 to 17, by now it's dark. You know, the moon's out. And I'm looking from the energy lab at Kona. And looking at the city, sit on the mountain, and I'm just like, I'm going to walk this mile because I can't believe I'm here right now. <laughs> this is, It was just picture perfect, and it reminded me of Colorado Springs because if you look from the airport from Colorado Springs out into the city where the the city sits on, the, on Pikes Peak, you know, um, it just looks amazing. <laughs> it, it, like, to see the city like that took me back, and I just had to kind of take it all in. Um, so mile 17, I start running again and I got to mile 20. Um, and I was just out of it. I was gassed at that point, 20 to 24. I was walking a lot. I had too much Red Bull, I think. Um, was your stomach still acting up? Yeah, it was, it was doing turns and, uh, I knew I completely forgot I started sooner. So my cutoff wasn't midnight. It was 1135 Mm -hmm. and I didn't realize I was cutting it really close, really, really close. <laughs> um, yeah, mile 24, I started running, and it was a steady jog, just really steady pace, and then I had to stop again. 
And I remember I felt like I talked to my friend about this. I felt like I heard a rush of like just support, like, oh, you got this ride, you got this ride, you can do this ride. And that's when I stopped and started walking. And I remember saying out loud that I'm not quitting, I just need to walk. And I when I said that, I was like, man, who am I talking to? <laughs> I don't know why I felt the need to say that out loud, but all I heard in my head was, you got this like cheers on cheers i i felt like i heard everybody's prayer and it was enough to keep me in it but i had to take a step and and just build up into that run because i wasn't i was really running on fumes at that point um but yeah and then coming in i'm seeing everybody and that's that's more than enough to kind of get you to the finish line i was it was hard to raise my hands for the high fives as you're coming across the line you know <laughs> everybody's like woo, like high five i'm like guys I'm, I'm trying to keep my arms up to give you a high five and then you get the hard ones i'm like oh man that just took everything out of me oh my god and everyone's like he's so rude he wouldn't even high five me <laughs> I, I don't want to be that guy i was i was so cranky too just angry just so angry you know you were angry at the end i was hangry hangry I was, I was oh god yeah of course <laughs> You know, but what, yeah, yeah, it was so special. So I came down and stood behind the finish line and waited from like 1030 on because I was like, I'm going to see him finish. I'm committed. I want to see Roderick. And I loved seeing all the other incredible people come in like the youngest competitor, 18 years old, I think. And, you know, 85-year-old men and people from, you know, all kind of walks. Like, it was crazy. That's where all the stories were coming in in that hour. And everyone was waiting for you. I'm not kidding. Like, Mike Riley, who's the announcer, was getting updates. And I could, I was right next to the box, so I could kind of hear what was going on in there. And they're like, okay, Roderick's, you know, 20 minutes out. Or he just hit mile 25. So, like, you don't realize that so many people were rooting for you and they wanted to see you cross the line. It's just, mm -hmm. it's so special. It was so special for everybody. I can only imagine how it felt for you. It was, it was amazing. One of the highlights of my life for sure. You know, at what point did you know in your head, like I will finish the finish line is like, there's no other way. Was it when you said out loud you know, I'm not, I'm not quitting or was there a different moment? Um, it was, it was on the bike. Once I knew I had the bike finish, I, I started, I still had those moments when I was like, what if I don't finish, especially on the run. But for some reason, once I was on the run and I thought, what if I don't finish, it was immediately pushed to the side because it just didn't sound right at that point. Like I, I couldn't see myself not finishing after everything that we just went through, <laughs> through that day, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm through the whole run. I'm just recapping the swim, recapping the bike, um, thinking about everything that happened. There were so many funny stories that happened on the course that is, <laughs> what are some? I guess, share some, uh, there's just funny things like the lady who tried to be, um, <laughs> helpful and like motivate me when, after I'm throwing up and she's just watching me throw up on the side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, oh, uh, you got it. 
<laughs> this one guy, he's like passing me. He's like, man, that looks hard. And I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> That's bro, so awesome. Bro. <laughs> Little things like that. Oh, my favorite story. I, I, <laughs> so I started doing more speaking after this event, and I love telling this story. Um, the Red Bull Kid. I have no idea what his name is, but there's this Red Bull kid that was, I'm pretty sure he was sipping on Red Bull the whole race. Um, and whenever anybody ran by asking for Red Bull, he would get excited. And I'm pretty convinced, like, if anybody took a shot of the Red Bull, he would take a shot as well. And as I run away from the A station, I just hear him in the back, Red Bull, Red Bull. <laughs> it's raging. This raging kid. I'm like, oh, he is hyped up right now <laughs> <laughs> that kid's parents are gonna kill him oh yeah, my god yeah. that is so awesome i just shouted i'm like red bull where's red bull and I, his like head pops up red bull like <laughs> <laughs> that was our conversation oh, i love it i love it well you know i've been thinking too as we talk like People are driven in different ways. Like we all have different driving forces. And for some of us, it's our kids. Well, you don't have a kid. You know, for some of us, it's some deep-seated lesson or value we learned from somebody else. Like what drives you to do the things you do that are seemingly impossible? And let me just say, you fa- you are the face of breaking barriers. I mean, first of all, in swimming, there's there are very few black swimmers. Like, I don't mean to bring race into it, but that's just true. It's a sport that is predominantly white. You don't necessarily see someone come out and start kicking butt, you know, pretty early on. Um, and, and also there's not a lot of double amputee athletes in general. So like to see you out on the course in Kona is, um, is barrier breaking visually in general. And so how do you, what drives you to continue to try to break these barriers? Um, it's, it's funny you say that, you know, you're right. I don't have kids right now. I'm. I feel like I'm at the point now where I could see myself building and working towards a family, but I, I have, I don't have kids, but I have my kids, if that makes sense. I have the children that are looking up to me that are in the same or similar situations, regardless of whatever disability it is. Um, you know, and they're the ones I'm kind of setting the stage for so that they can see that anything's pop- possible and do better and go further from that. Um, so that's my goal with them. But for my, I mean, and when I think about how it was when I was younger and Rudy and I, we didn't really have anybody like us to look up to. So to be that for them and picture like if there was a young Rudy or a young Roderick in the crowd, how would they see us? Like how amazed would they be with what we did? Um, and that's enough to make me want to keep going. That's a lot. I mean, there's the word visibility is so important. You know, you don't put yourself out there. No one else will know. You have Mm -hmm. to put yourself out there for other people to see. Going back to the beginning of our interview, you said, I had no idea I could do sports until I met Rudy. So other people are definitely saying that from having met you. It's so amazing. (laughs) 
Yeah, they are. Believe me. You know, one other word that comes to mind when I think of you is the word smile. Um, <sighs> I, is Have you, like, are you always like that? <laughs> is that you? <laughs> because you have this smile that literally lights up the area around you. I want to say the room, but you're often on the road, right? <laughs> and there's a lot of power behind smiling. I mean, there's a whole science behind it and what it can do for your body. When I think about your background and the situation that you had to grow up in of, you know, not knowing where you where you lived and having to find the positivity through that, I don't know. I just, I wondered what your take is on, are you smiling because it's like a tactic or is that just who you are? I've always been a look on the brighter side kind of person. Um, and especially going through my situations has helped me adapt. As I got older, it's interesting how those ways in the past kind of helped with adapting and changing and growing um, constantly. Uh, I've always been a happy kid. I was always a smiling person. And then now that I'm older and, and my life is kind of going the way I want it to go, we're in a positive direction for me and the people around me. Um, it's kind of giving me, I tell my friend, I'm, I'm too blessed to be stressed. I've been blessed since I was born. And, you know, there's a lot of people with worse conditions than me or even people with struggles that I wouldn't understand. Um, and that's what this was about. You know, this, I love that Iron Man is just a metaphor because everybody has their own Iron Man that they're going through in their life, whether it's actual race or something that nobody else sees. Um, you're right on. Yeah. And I think, you know, with your new path forward, it sounds like you're exploring your next steps, um, learning what you might be able to do to give back in a different way and continuing to work at Tailwind. Um, what do you see coming out of this? Are you in exploratory mode or do you, do you know what you want to do next? Um, all right. So I, I have two things that I want to do or two paths that I'm thinking about going down. I don't really know yet. Um, one, I am curious about getting into doing more speaking engagements. I'm looking to get a speaking agent or a booking agent and possibly a book deal. Um, I'm supposed to be speaking with a ghostwriter, um, today actually. And that's the route that I'm thinking of taking, doing more speaking books. And on the side, I was thinking of doing more modeling for adaptive lines um, trying to get more awareness about CAF, Zappos Adaptive, um, Tommy Hilfiger, all these other lines that are putting out for adaptive um, individuals or somebody who needs more assistance. Uh, and just being, you know, there's, I, I want to, I don't want to do anything risque, you know, <laughs> I'm not trying to be, you know, Mr. Underwear model, uh, but I wouldn't mind being a representation for people with disabilities in the modeling world. Again, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to walk down a, a runway, but I wouldn't mind. <laughs> so and what I'm kind of take from both of these avenues is it's about helping other people see what they can do. And uh and through either the written word, the spoken word or visually. So, and it makes total sense. And you'll be great at all those things. I can't wait Thanks. to see you out there. So you can do another Ironman sometime? Uh, that's the other path. That's what I don't know. Because I, I, I don't know if I told you, I got invited to do uh, New Zealand. 
Um, I was invited to do Patagon Man in uh, December, um, which is in Chile. Um, and then there's Oceanside next year. So there's a lot of racing and possibly sponsorships in that. Um, it's just getting the schedule and seeing which sponsors want to work together. Yeah. So we want to see yeah. more of you out in this world because you are an incredible positive force. And I'm so happy our paths crossed and, and we got to spend some time with you and Kona and, and watch that magic. For sure. It was meant to be. We, we had to meet and I'm glad we did. Yes. Well, before we sign off, I ask every guest at the end of my show to leave our listeners with one final nugget, one little piece of advice to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way. What would yours be? I guess, what would I say? The one thing I always tell myself to kind of remind myself that I'm not a disabled person. I'm just a differently abled living life a different way from the norm. Um, a true disability is a negative mindset. If I want to be disabled, I could, but I choose to live life and on different terms. Oh, I love that. That's a perfect ending. It's not an ending. It's a beginning. Can't wait to see more of you, Roderick. And I can't wait for our paths to cross again. Thank you, Nicole. Hey there, everyone. I'm back. Um, really funny note. I, it's been a few weeks since I did an episode. I'm sure you noticed this. I almost forgot to ask him his final nugget, but I'm so glad I did because he's such a rock star. He had nuggets throughout. One of my favorites is, I'm too blessed to be stressed. I love it. Easy to remember. It could be a song. Um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Roderick. I find him to be an extraordinary person and definitely worth having on your radar and keeping in your thoughts um, because just a little bit of him in your life every day will, will turn your day around, bring that smile and bring the power behind the smile into the things you do. Um, let's talk a little bit about support. At the beginning in my intro, I told you a little bit about what is going on with me. Many people ask, you know, how can I help? What can I do? I'll give you a few things you can do to support me. You can you can get over to skirtsports.com and shop. We have a sale that started recently and it's going to run through the holidays. We need to sell a bunch of inventory and um and it's awesome inventory and it's beautiful products and they fit you like they should. So get over to Skirt Sports and shop our sale. The deals are insane. Plus, you get free shipping over 75. You get like three things and free shipping for 75 bucks. Um, so buy stuff for you, buy stuff for your friends, buy stuff for people who don't work out yet but need to because this will help them. You can share the podcast love. Please share, write reviews, share it with your friends and your family, um, and share it on social. I mean, I love seeing it when you guys post and you tag me. It means a lot. It really does. Um, and finally, you can actually support me on Patreon. If you think that the podcast adds value, I don't get paid to do this. I'll At some point, I may start trying to get some sponsors, but right now I do this because I love it. And um, and if you decide you, you think it's worth five bucks a month, do it. And uh, it's hard to ask for that kind of stuff, and that's not my nature, but... Um, 
But if you feel like supporting me on Patreon, get over there. It's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Nicole DeBoom or Run This World. I can't remember. <laughs> You'll have to Google it. <laughs> See, I'm so good at it. I can't even remember. Um, but everybody, I really appreciate you. You are amazing. Uh, here is to a wonderful day, a wonderful week, a wonderful month, and uh, look forward to the next interview, which will be coming up soon in the next one or two weeks to keep this, keep this energy going. All right, everyone, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>